So this morning I thought we would have a look at the trial of Jesus and uh, try to take the events to heart, really to heart. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Brothers and sisters, what were you doing on Wednesday? I was at home sitting on the floor working on some electronics with mounds of wire and bits of equipment, waiting for the doorbell to ring and preparing for a busy Thursday and Friday. And I was preparing to come here and give this talk. But what were you each doing on Wednesday? Can you remember? Because whatever you were doing, the next evening you'd walk willingly to your own mock trial, dead by 3pm Friday. Along with the Passover lambs. A lot has to happen in the two days between Wednesday and Friday. And just when the Jewish authorities didn't want it to happen because they feared a riot. It didn't matter what the Jewish leadership wanted or thought. While they meant it for evil, God meant it for good. All their power games came to nothing and God speeded on towards the end of Jesus. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why is this waste of perfume being made? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Even before the moment that John the Baptist first cried out, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world... Jesus had been acting deliberately and careful to walk steadily towards his death in exactly the way the prophecies of the Old Testament predicted. Recall his words to Mary at Cana when she asked him to turn water into wine. Women, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. But his hour was coming. And Mary, the one who sat at the feet and listened and took these things to her heart, understood his timing more than anyone. She knew what was going to happen. After all, Jesus had raised her brother Lazarus and she would have watched him in the house very gratefully and thought very deeply about resurrection. And so when Jesus arrived, she knew all about death and resurrection and she knew what she had to do, what she could do. To all around her, this was 300 days wages used on Jesus. Where did you get this from anyway? Why didn't you ask our advice about what to do with such a gift? If only you had asked, we could have sold it and found better ways for you to help. What a useless, emotionally driven waste. But why wasn't it used to do something really worthwhile? And yet, not only does he turn away her accusers, but he defends her right to do as she did, and is effusive in his praise, and states that to this day we will all read of her act of love. So why had Mary done this, to anoint his head and feet, until it dripped onto the floor, totally dominating the whole house, What prompted her to come out of the shadows and move to the forefront, as it were, and lavish this gift on Jesus? Well, in a few days, Jesus will be tearful and crying out loudly in prayer to God, sweating great drops of blood. Jesus was under enormous pressure. His heart would have been beating unusually fast, like any of us, given an event so terrible as that was looming. And after the heat of the day, he was under pressure in this house of his friend Lazarus, knowing what would happen to them all once he'd left. He was coming to the end of a very arduous ministry, and Mary knew it. She did what she could, 
She seized the opportunity to show Jesus her love and used the whole year's supply of perfume. A foresightful woman of love is kind and generous and greatly surprising. Let's learn from this listener, Mary, to seek the kingdom of God first. And that love for our Lord takes priority and the rest will be added to you as he pleases. So very often criticism is merely the exercise of a purely human muscle with a thin slimy veneer of whitewash smeared over the top. The very person who so sharply rebuked Mary was now to turn his wrath on Jesus. You can imagine Judas being rebuked by Jesus and him thinking, me? Who doubts it would have been better for the money to have been sold and given to the poor? And if the Jewish leadership go for my plan, I can get a good price. I can get my hands on that money instead of the money Mary wasted. Anointed for his burial, well, if, that, if he's so intent on going to his burial and fulfilling prophecy, I so no, see no reason in not making money from the inevitable. I once had a conversation with a Christian man who was a computer modeler for an extreme sports company which was bought by a military company. And I asked him if he was now considering leaving. And he told me his conscience was clear. If I don't do it, somebody else will. So why should I leave? It won't change anything. But of course, if you leave, you are not the one doing it. And so it was with Judas. Even though he was warned, he still carried on, probably justifying himself occasionally with words such as these. And he spent nearly a week looking for an opportunity not to, get, um, to, to go through with his course of action, uh, to find the right moment to betray Jesus. Another lesson we learn from him is stop as soon as you know what you're doing. Don't go further. Seek God while in the middle of your temptation. It's better than saying sorry afterwards. Or to put another way, don't let yourself ever be fully possessed by your shadow. And especially not if you're one of those who walks with Jesus. On the first day of the festival unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now the city was crowded to breaking point with hundreds of thousands potentially of people there. And here were 12 plus Jesus. And we wonder what they must have been thinking. Where on earth are we going to get suitable room at this time? We wonder what Jesus, uh, Judas must have been thinking. Maybe tonight this will be the place to arrest him. I hope the room doesn't cost too much or I won't have any money left. I'll listen carefully to where Jesus says the place is and then I'll go and warn the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus sends two disciples off. Go and follow a man with a pitcher of water, thwarted. I like to think that in this crowded city and given the time scale involved with just two days to go, God had already positioned angels in that city preparing things to run smoothly. This is, after all, the pivotal moment in the plan of God. And also, let's imagine now Jesus coming into the city some time later. He must also find the same place. And we see him, as it were, in our minds, walking straight there to the upper room prepared for him. No one having time to return to tell him where the room was. And Judas now not being able to get out and tell the others. My hour has not yet come. As Jesus fulfilled all righteousness in keeping the Passover, he knows it isn't his hour yet, but it's getting closer. Judas had no option but to play the disciple for one more meal. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve, and while they were reclining at the table, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. 
one who is eating with me. And they were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man must go as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he hadn't been born. What you are about to do, do quickly. And Judas went out, and it was night. And we note, don't we, that the sun was darkened when Jesus was crucified, and we consider that to be a solar eclipse of some kind, where the moon gets in the way of the sun. If that's true, then at night time there would be no moon, and it would have been pitch black. While they were eating, he took bread, and he gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. I wonder if you've ever had a heavy heart or been overcome with emotion when trying to sing, and you fall silent like I do until you can recover yourself. It's a good job the disciples simply didn't know what was going to happen. And it would have been a very quiet hymn. Jesus predicts that all his disciples will flee and receive the over-self-confident replies. That kind of confidence that can take on the world, that we feel so keenly at baptism, but perhaps don't yet realise that it's God through us that ensures our victory, and that this requires suffering and perseverance and discipline. Even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. And all the others said the same. When Jesus got to Gethsemane, he went a little further from where he left them, and his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, we're told. And he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And when he returned, we remember he found the disciples sleeping. In Jesus' great time of consuming and crushing pressure and that physical pain of loneliness, of bearing a burden alone, the disciples missed their opportunity to support him and to grow in their faith. They missed the opportunity to pray with him and to learn about the coming week. His strength fails him and his emotions reach breaking point and he falls to the ground. And speaking personally, I've only experienced something very similar once after someone very close to me died. I was walking home just like I'd done on all the other days up a steep hill but finally it was too much and all of my strength vaporised and I just sat on the wall there waiting until the puddle of grief was passed. But for Jesus this powerful grief at the loss of his life would be gripped by resolution and a humble resignation. And after years of ministry, Jesus now reaches the time in verse 41. And he abruptly says, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. And with him a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. And he stepped forward not away from the crowd, and asked who they sought. And they told him, Jesus, the Nazarene. And when he replied, I am, they stepped backwards from him and all fell to the ground, we're told. 
And some have suggested that Jesus was using this as an opportunity to state that he was God and that the breath of his mouth was in some way infinite in power and they'd all been forced to the ground. But I think a simple reading will suffice. They came in force because Jesus was a man of power who doubted this. They felt the only way was with overwhelming force, but no one wanted to be the first to cast the stone, as it were, and they'd all stepped back away from him. With close to a thousand people pressing from behind in the dark on slope, they had fallen back on each other. If you've ever been at the bottom of an escalator and somebody doesn't get it right, you'll know how they were. The point was, those in front knew their actions were wrong, and they were fearful of the power that Jesus possessed. They were either paid to be there, or they were weak-minded followers of these corrupt leaders. The Roman soldiers probably were in the sides and the rear to ensure no trouble. When asking for volunteers or for an arduous or risky mission, all it takes is for men to step back to leave you in the limelight. And this is where the true instigators of this betrayal found themselves. The crowd was spearheaded by Judas and the corrupt uh, party from the high priest, standing opposite with Jesus and Peter. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And this is no ordinary kiss. The Greek means to kiss fervently. How one could kiss a man... Now, one could kiss a man on the feet as a slave, or one could kiss a man on the hands, but this is a kiss of a friend. It's in keeping with one whose stony heart never really knew the truth. Judas was acting out the part of a disciple who'd been perhaps caught by the mob himself and was thrilled to see Jesus again after his supposed ordeal. And were it not for Jesus' blunt commentary on what Jesus had, Judas had done, and his subsequent remorse catalogued in the Bible, he might have got away with this. It was premeditated, cold-blooded betrayal. And I checked on Facebook when writing this. I checked my friends of friends to see who was named Adolf and who was named Judas. And there were more Adolfs out there than there are Judases, and that says something. There were even Josephs, not even Stalin could dirty that name. There were lots of Karls and there were lots of Sauls, but very few Judases. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. And I feel that this needs expansion, and I'd like to read you a short extract from a book about what being arrested actually feels like from the point of view of an innocent man. And this is from the Gulag Archipelago from Solzhenitsyn. He was a victim of Stalin's regime and was tortured and imprisoned. And I hope that after we've read this, we'll get some idea of how shattering the act of arrest is. And he writes, Arrest is an instantaneous, shattering thrust, an expulsion, a somersault from one state into another. We have been happily born or perhaps unhappily dragged our weary way down the long and crooked streets of our lives, past all kinds of walls and fences made of rotting wood and rammed earth and brick or concrete or iron railings. We've never given a thought to what lies behind them. We've never tried to penetrate them with our vision or our understanding. But there is where the gulag country begins, right next to us, two yards from us. In addition, we fail to notice an enormous number of closely fitted, well-disguised doors and gates in these fences. All those gates were prepared for us, every last one of them. 
and all of a sudden the fateful gate swings quickly open and four white male hands, unaccustomed to physical labour but nonetheless strong and tenacious, grab us by the leg, the arm, collar, cap, ear and drag us like a sack and the gate shuts behind us. The gate to our past life is slammed shut once and for all. And that's all there is to it. You are arrested. And you find nothing better to respond with than a lamb-like bleat. Me? What for? That's what arrest is. It's a blinding flash and a blow which shifts the present instantly into the past and the impossible into omnipotent actuality. That's all. And neither for the first hour nor for the first day will you be able to grasp anything else, except that in your desperation, this fake circus moon will blink at you. It's a mistake. They'll set things right. But of course it doesn't get set right, and your life is never the same. And if you survive the horrors waiting for you, and all the time you know you're innocent. But for Jesus, innocent as he was, this was no mistake. His was no random arrest or mistaken identity, and the night was as black as ink, no moon at all, just the tortures of the mob with its latent intent of cold-blooded murder. For Jesus, then, this arrest was expected, but only the beginning. Surely for any of us, the thoughts of the suffering that lay ahead would have deafened us. The certainty of the knowledge would have loomed larger than life itself. To a normal, innocent man, arrest is a bolt so intense that merely going through the process is sometimes enough to break people so that they never recover. But lamb-like as Jesus was, he didn't bleat in shock or disbelief. Returning from prayer to his father, he was full of resolve, and resolve is only possible when you have clear, focused expectations. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear, And Peter, again in the wrong place at the wrong time, punctuates this moment with his will rather than God's. He needs to get with the program. After all, as far as confident Peter is concerned, this mob with all its violence just fell down before Jesus after he'd just said one word. And this, coupled with the miracles, was proof of Jesus' power. He remembered the way Jesus had slipped his way through the crowd when they tried to throw him off a cliff, the way Jesus had entered the city. Peter still didn't understand he still expected to fight his way to power. Put your sword back where it belongs, for those who use swords are destroyed by them. Don't you realise I am able to call right now to my father and twelve legions of angels would be here? And I thought about the destroying angel in the Old Testament that went to war on behalf of Israel and killed 185,000 people. If you have 12 legions, that's about 70,000 angels. And a quick mental calculation. In those days, that amount of angels could have killed 40 times the population of the earth. Quite a lot of power that Jesus wasn't calling down. And instead he heals the high priest's slave. And he's left standing there with drying blood on his arms and clothes and part of an ear in his hand. He'd been circumcised of ear. And Jesus had healed him of that. And I like to think of Caiaphas looking at his, uh, his slave and perhaps seeing the piercing in this bit of the ear that proved that Malchus was willing to stay bound to his family. And he knew in a way that the 30 pieces of silver that he'd had to shell out earlier had been returned to him. Jesus had, it, as it were, given his slave back to him, the proof that he was owned by him. 
Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And we cannot help but marvel at the strength and control and courage and togetherness of Jesus as he confronts this mob and just calls them out on their illegality, emphasizing God's will in his life. Then everyone deserted him and fled, all of them. But Peter still has something to prove. He still needs to follow Jesus to show him he won't be denying him. But as he comforts himself by the warm fire, the reality of the situation dawns on him as professional killers wander past in their Roman uniforms. Peter's fears overcome him and we know the rest. Just a little comfort. And comfort is one of those drugs that Jesus always refused. And it's an exercise of mind at some stage to think how comfortable we make our lives from the type of coffee we buy to the the cars we drive, the colours of things. There's just literally nothing, if you look around in your home, that you haven't made comfortable for yourself. Not so with Jesus. And so the trial begins. It's a travesty of justice. There are two phases that conquered states in the Roman habitable had to go through. If they wanted the death penalty, they had to go through both of them. These 71 members of the Sanhedrin that we read about earlier were supposed to be impartial judges, but they were anything but. They certainly weren't supposed to be prosecutors. They weren't supposed to go finding accusers, and they weren't the police. They weren't supposed to act as witnesses or gather witnesses. Instead, the Sanhedrin actually procured the arrest. They bribed Judas, and they did it illegally on a religious holiday the day before the Sabbath in nighttime, again violating the Hebrew system of doing things in the daylight so that justice was something that everybody could watch and truth was something that could be gained together in the day. Night meant death was being sought from the beginning and we spare a thought for Lazarus whom they also wanted dead as he represented proof of Jesus' power and his message. The witnesses didn't agree but both said Jesus kind of was going to destroy a temple And this would have been sedition. Sedition is destruction of the government or property of the government. But he just said that he was going to destroy this temple and then build it up again. So even if it referred to the temple, he said he was going to repair any damage that was going on. And so they had their facts wrong and the law was wrong. The witnesses disagree. And under Jewish law, the case should have been over right then. And another day added to find credible witnesses. Instead, they decided to proceed on a different charge. The high priest asked Jesus, Are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? I am, came the reply. And the high priest, in contravention to Jewish law, ripped his clothes and asked, What need we for further witness? But under Jewish law, they did need further witness because it's impossible as it is in our country, in America, So it was in uh, Israel in that day, you can't be convicted on your own confession solely. You have to have corroborating evidence. If they had sought further witnesses, they would have established Jesus' innocence, the answer to whether he was the Son of God. And that's why they left the trial there. They stopped pursuing further witnesses. They stopped the trial. The verdict was also illegal because it was unanimous. 
and under Jewish law, a unanimous verdict meant acquittal because under Jewish law, you had to have somebody to speak on your defense and the trial should have ended with an acquittal and put off for another day. All of this was done in one day, again, illegal under Jewish law. Under Jewish law. 24 hours is required after a guilty verdict before any punishment. So they charged him with being the Messiah and found him guilty without ever assessing the claims. A travesty in every possible way. The Roman part of the trial was slightly better. Pilate had two options, whether he should listen and judge on a summary basis or because they had changed the charges since they had convicted him from whether he was the Messiah to blasphemy, um, from blasphemy, sorry, to the three charges they presented to Pilate, he then had to start from the beginning. They said that Jesus was advocating not paying taxes. He was undermining the Jewish state and claimed to be a king. Pilate brushed the first two aside. But he did the right thing and listened to the accusers on the third aspect. You claim to be a king. How do you plead to that? And Jesus answered, I am king, but my kingdom is not of this world. So I'm not in competition with Caesar. I'm king over people's hearts and their purpose in their life. And Pilate immediately found no fault with him. He was innocent of being treasonous, but he was guilty of being a king. And he ordered the plaque to be made. Jesus didn't offer any defense to the charge of destroying the temple or wanting to stop people from paying taxes. But when Jesus was asked about his messiahship and his kingship, he spoke up. And Roman trial was therefore legal up to the last point, the sentencing aspect. We don't sentence an innocent person. He was sent to Herod so that Pilate didn't have to make any decisions, but Herod found him no fun at all. So he sent him back to Pilate. And Pilate, once again, trying to get out of the decision, offered them uh, a real perpetrator of sedition. And even though the people decided they wanted Jesus, uh, Pilate still, after all of that, decided he was worthy of death, though he was innocent. (laughs) There is really nothing good about either of those trials. But when we read in the Bible about how the trials should have occurred, we read these rather lovely words from Deuteronomy 16. You are to appoint judges and officers for all your gates in all your cities. Adonai, your God, is giving you tribe by tribe, and they are to judge the people with righteous judgment. You're not to distort justice or show favoritism, and you're not to accept a bribe, for a gift blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of even the upright. Only justice you must pursue so that you will live and inherit the land Adonai your God is giving you. Here was the great Jewish, uh, great Sanhedrin, the pinnacle of the justice that was supposed to exist in Israel. It's the ultimate kangaroo court and the most unfair trial by human standards, but Christ allows the proceedings in accordance with the will of God. And so as the spitting and the beating was beginning and the mocking, scornful laughter, what power he has beyond our ability to understand, what humility that even the scorn of an enemy rolls off his back along with the lashes and the metal spikes. So severe that many people died at this stage. The intense searing pain 
sent electrical shocks across their backs as the weapons plunged deep into their flesh. The senses of those used to witnessing or inflicting torture was dulled. They were used to seeing tormented, unrestrained anger from the victims or bound aggression, unfiltered language or begging or pleading and inhuman scenes. And those murderous Jewish leaders watching on with pleasure as he suffered, later to mock him while he was hanging, being crucified. Jesus managed to persevere, to be fitted with a crown of thorns and to be mocked with purple robes and to walk and stagger with his arms strapped to crossbeams. It's hardly, we're hardly able to comprehend the, gra- the gravity, the enormity of the suffering he went through. And what love, though, as he hung there, he entrusted his mother to John. Imagine that massive company of people looking on with only a few familiar faces, his disciples having melted away. We read in Ecclesiastes, like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. It's meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. Patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. For those that loved him and stood by watching, it lasted an eternity. And what of those disciples that fled? As thousands of people gathered to celebrate Passover, what were they doing? As the skies darkened and the ground shook, what were his disciples doing? Were they together, hiding? Were they every man for themselves? Were they praying? In all this suffering, some I know have remarked that Jesus had an advantage in his life over us because of his remarkable, undeniable link to his father from birth, having a genetic inheritance, knowing his purpose from a youth, that he'd absolute power. He could heal thousands in a day and his prayers were always answered and he was vindicated in arguments against people, that in short, his faith was turned to sight during his lifetime. He didn't have to fill a space between what he believed to be true and what he could evidence to be true because he he was the full embodiment of deity, the physical condensation of God's plan, the whole of scripture, every prophecy, the entire law. He had in himself the power to convince himself, and we are worse off as we require faith. But consider that unlike us, where we have limited power over our future, and therefore our free will only exists within the limits of that power, Jesus had absolute power, the spirit of God without measure, And therefore he had ultimate free will, absolute free will. Jesus was innocent and he had absolute free will. And that infinite gulf that existed between what his will wanted and what his father wanted had to be overcome with humility and obedience, with love for his father. If emotion is that which motivates us to move from A to B, then Jesus had to detach his emotions from the agony he felt, knowing that he could choose to do whatever would minimise that suffering. He could have swapped places with the people who were so unfair, those who were scorning him as he hung there. He had to allow no feelings of unfairness, which, as we know, are baked into us at birth, to cloud his thinking. No feelings of indignation or judgement. He had to respect that it pleased God to bruise him, more than his own anger at being killed, the unjust injustice of it, as his mother looked on in shock. 
if God looks the way that humans do, if he looked for our guilt, he would surely find it. But hidden in that name Adonai is is a pictographic explanation of what God actually does when he is our judge. And instead of looking for our guilt, he is the one who opens the door to new life. He is looking to vindicate us. It's the opposite of what everybody around Jesus was doing. So in response to all these things, let's just listen to what Jesus has to say. I tell you the truth. Someone says to him, to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. So why aren't we all examples of dramatic obedience, given everything that Jesus has done for us, and the example that he's given us, and that statement that we, if we are faithful and don't doubt, it will be done for us. Why aren't we as resolute in our commitment as he was? Why do we doubt at all? Why don't we just take advantage of that which is clearly offered to us? Each of us will have a different answer to that question. What things that I know are bad for my relationship with God can I stop doing? Can I replace with positive expressions of my purpose? What things should I start doing right now? Can I think of just one single thing which I didn't get round to doing yesterday that I know is a true act of love? Not that I can earn the kingdom, but that I want to show my love. And our minds briefly return to Peter when the Lord said to him, Do you love me? (coughs) When will we stop being what we want to be? And when will we start doing what the Father wants of us? That's the question from this exhortation. If Jesus can pray with such agony that the cup be taken from him, we know that he completely understands the agony we face sometimes. And as our counsel and friend, do we doubt that he is capable of praying on our behalf with everything that he has? And that he's been there for us in ways we can't even appreciate. We must remember that Jesus' saving work has been finished, but we are his holy bride, bought with his life that he is presenting back to God as a people that will praise him. And this work of love and care has continued and still continues every day. If Jesus can survive an utterly unfair trial and brutal execution, watching on as his friends fall into grief and yet still submit to the love to God's will in faith, in extreme weakness, then we can ask ourselves, what should our response be?